Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow, and this week's guest is the Bridgerton star, Adjoa Ander. When not playing Lady Danbury in that high-profile Regency drama, Adjoa is a renowned stage actor, celebrated for her performances with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre, and The Globe, where in 2019 she played Richard II in the UK's first All Women of Colour production. Adjoa has now turned her attention to Shakespeare's Richard III. She directs and takes the lead role, inviting the audience to think about what happens to a person and their sense of self when bad intentions are ascribed to them based solely on their appearance. Adjoa believes that storytelling is a powerful tool that can help us engage with each other as human beings and push away the bars that prevent people from flourishing. She knows what it is to feel marginalised, to be wounded, and yet she retains an empathy that we could all learn from. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You're an acclaimed actor who's taken on some big theatrical roles, but it was one play that had a very big impact on you when you were a teenager. Can you take me back to that moment? Now, are you talking about Plenty? I am talking about Plenty. Excellent. So this is a play by David Hare. I was doing my A-levels, and in my school, you weren't allowed to study drama unless you were doing A-levels because it wasn't considered a proper subject. Yeah, That's an amazing condemnation, isn't well, it? Well, that was the, really the thinking at the time. And my drama teacher had once been a professional actress, Vera Connor Douglas, Miss Connor. I wish she had lived longer because I would have loved to have just said thank you for Spotting sticking you with coming. me. Yeah. Spotting you coming. Yeah. So one of the things we had to do for our drama O-level was we had to attend the theatre and then we had to see a play and, you know, write notes about the production, the style, the content, blah, blah, blah. So I went to see this play that was on Bristol Old Vic, Kate Nelligan, 
in a David Hare play, Plenty. And, you know, I went on a wet matinee afternoon, sat in the cheap seats and was completely struck by the power of this play. So it said in the Second World War, for people who don't know, a woman who is a secretary in London gets sent overseas on special ops because she can speak French. And she finds that she is her best self over there. She's brilliant at running special ops. She falls in love, has adventures and is the most fulfilled she's ever been in this moment of extreme danger, but extreme risk and excitement and calling on all her resources. And that lit the actress' fire in you? the thing that lit the fire in me was she comes back to London after the war and she has to go back to being a secretary again. And she is dreadfully depressed and suffocated by her role as a sort of middle-class young woman stuck with the roles that middle-class young women are stuck with in that era. But there was something for me that the play made me weep. I wept for her distress and not being allowed to be her best self. And there was something in that moment that I understood, A, about myself needing to find what would put me in a position to be my best self, and B, the power of theatre. Here was I, you know, a teenage girl in the 70s, watching a play. It wasn't my life. There was no sort of parallels there. And yet there were enormous parallels um, as a human being to another human being. And the power of the theatre to do that on a wet Wednesday afternoon matinee It really hit me like a freight train. And, um, yeah, it was a huge inspiration for me. You knew you wanted to act. Yes. But but can you tell me why you didn't think it was a realistic career, living in the Cotswolds in the 1970s, a black woman to boot? Well, (laughs) 1960s and 1970s Cotswolds in a tiny farming village. To say that you wanted to be an actor, you may as well have said, you know, that you wanted to be an astrophysicist and fly to the moon or whatever. It was just not on the cards. Clever girls... You might go to university, but really most people didn't. Or you might get a job in the bank or you might apply to join the civil service or work in a building society. That's what smart girls did. So the possibilities of the world were really not pushed as possibilities for us as the school cohort at the time. So what was the break-in? For me, what shifted all of that? I was supposed to go to Cambridge to read law. I was supposed to go to Trinity College where my headmaster had gone. Very bright girl. Uh, I was bright, but I had a nervous breakdown in the sixth form. Don't worry, you still are. Well, I don't know about that. Fuzzy now. So I didn't go to Cambridge. I bombed out of all my A-levels. I didn't do well in the Oxbridge entrance exam and... I basically left school with my tail between my legs, resat my A-levels at Filton Technical College just for pride, and then I was done. So then I worked for Lloyds Bank. I worked for Lloyds Bank during the Falklands. So can you imagine, the bank manager was the local Tory councillor, the secretaries were in lady dye blouses, and I was an ex-punk rocker working in a bank, not very good at it, who came to work in, you know, men's shoes. And they didn't know what to do with me and I just couldn't bear it. So I lasted a year and a day. And then I went and did a law degree at Bristol Polytechnic. Intending to be a lawyer? Intending to be a lawyer and fight for the rights of blah, 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 all of that. Two years in, I knew darn well I was not going to be a lawyer. I just hated the study. I just didn't want to do it. By this time, I joined a black women's group in Bristol. There was a lawyer who's still my friend. She was a law undergrad then in the third year. She was, you know, black was a term that didn't mean of African heritage then. It meant of colour. You know, it was a political term then, wasn't it? So Yvonne was a Guyanese Indian Irish. There was a Turkish woman in the second year and the Turkish woman said, I've seen, there's one in the first year. And Yvonne was like, (laughs) get her, 
get her. So I joined the Black Women's Group and we went to Greenham. We encircled the base. We did all that. And I was introduced to Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and all those wonderful writers. And one of the women in the group was an actress. And she'd been in the San Francisco meme troupe. And when I packed in my law degree, inevitably, she said to me, come and take my class. And I was like, OK, Deborah. So I took her class and then she got funded by Ken Livingston to do a show that she'd written in London. So she said to me, come and audition for my show. So I came up to London and I auditioned and I got the part. And so my first ever job was in a play written and directed by a black woman, a cast of five black women. And we were on at the Drill Hall at the Oval House and Acton Community Centre. And we did a small scale tour and I just never went back. It's such a breakthrough Mm. and yet such a chance. Mm, Absolutely. Without it, the likelihood of your becoming the great actress that you are... I would have been an unhappy lawyer, probably. <laughs> well, yeah. you'd have to do lots of acting, pretending uh, yes. you do lots of law. Yes, exactly. Uh, and having to perform in a court. Yes, yes. Higher stakes, probably. I think a lot of these lawyers are very frustrated actors. I think so, too. Mm. I read law. Did you? Yeah, I had mm. to go and act the goat on the telly instead. Now, when you were first struggling to get acting work in London, other black female actors helped you out. How important was this? I've never really forgotten it because... The generosity for other black actresses, you know, this is the early 80s, to tell me about auditions, you know, put me in competition with them for scarce work. That generosity, I've never forgotten. Was it generosity or solidarity? Both. Because, I mean, it's generosity in a way because they were reducing their own chances of getting paid employment. Mm -hmm. So literally generous, I think. But also solidarity. And I think both of those things have stayed with me and have been a sort of template for how I feel one should operate. So I'm pushing not just for actors. I've been pushing for getting more people of colour behind the camera, uh, on the floor. Mm. You know, for Making me, decisions. It has to be because otherwise we're just window dressing. We've mm-hmm. got to be in the back office as mm. well. It's so important. It's so important because I think human beings, we are intrinsically interested in ourselves. So we need a a broader panoply of people who are making the decisions about the stories they want to see so that we have that variety of stories available for the the varied audiences that will be watching them. You feel an obligation or a devotion? Both. I feel it's my duty, but it's my joy to do that. Yeah. And can you think of people that have come up through the ranks that you've enjoyed seeing yes. move forward? Yes, I've been on the audition panel at RADA for, gosh, 15 more years. What a uh, breakthrough. You must have been the first. There have been a few others. There's a wonderful writer-director who works at um, RADA called Nona Shepherd, And Nona directed me in my first equity job for a feminist socialist theatre company called Theatre Centre. And she's at RADA and she's been putting into practice her politics. So she got me on that panel. She wants to open the space. And there are some actors who I was on the audition panel who say to me, because you were on that panel, I feel like I got through and I have a career because of you. I mean, honestly, I'm a tiny cog in a big, much bigger machine. I, I hope that lots of us are doing that, actually. That's what I was going to ask, yeah, whether I, the threads are actually quite they, solid. I think they are. Yeah. I think my generation of actors and directors and you know creative people are very aware of being the only one in the room a lot of the time and wanting to make that be less the case for generations following us. 
doing Richard III, four of the black trainee crew people off Bridgerton, who I've made my gang, came to see the show because I'd said to them, come into rehearsals, come and see what happens. They're all interested, you know, they're working as runners, but they really want to be directors or writers or producers. So I just think you have to pay it forward the whole time. It's a Mandela, ANC, each one, teach one. I should confess that we were there too. It was absolutely stunning performance. Thank you, John. Gorgeous. And here we were in what seemed to me to be a relatively white theatre. Yeah. In a suburban Surrey... And you lit the fire. Well, my big thing is about I want the invitation to be broad for people. And when I'm doing Shakespeare, I know there's a certain theatre membership who will come because they like their classics. But I want to open the door to those people that maybe go to pantos and musicals or have been educated into thinking Shakespeare's not for them. They're not smart enough or it's dull or dreary. And I just want them to come and have another experience, really. I can't help saying that when I came to see the show... Richard III, though this was an extraordinary moment to be seeing a black king, it became perfectly natural. Good. The thing for me is I want to tell the story. So at some point you just have to be back in the story. And so the things that are important to me are that the narrative is clear, that the text is spoken with understanding. Because if you're just singing through Shakespeare, then no one in the audience is going to know what on earth you're talking about. But you were acting a part that had never been in real life. Yes, but I was also acting the part of a younger brother, Mm -hmm. the person who is sort of excluded from the larger welcome of the society because of what they look like. So in a way, you take the character and then you, you pour in all the human things that we understand from life. And this desire to carry the threads through, Mm. I mean, does it stay with you all your professional life? It does, irritatingly, yes. It's like, I can't switch that off because... um, But it's such a joy. Just imagine somebody quite young coming across you and being able to talk to you. I love young people. I love how curious and engaged they are and what an appetite they have for the world. Just as I came through a really odd little track, so do lots of young people. And I want to, if I can help, just push them a little bit into discovering what it is they love and they're good at and what's the round hole that their peg will fit into. (laughs) Yeah, very good. Yeah. Uh, Shonda Rhimes is a powerful black woman increasing representation in television and making history along the way. Yes. How excited were you to work with her? Extremely. And in a costume drama? Yeah, I was extremely excited to work with Shonda because I think she has a very elegant way of doing what she does. And she privileges, first and foremost, storytelling. So the story has to be strong. The narrative drive has to be clear. Before she weaves anything else in, in terms of who the characters are, backgrounds and all that stuff, the story, the story, the story is the most important element. And my kids and I, Grey's Anatomy was a a family sit down and watch together. And the stories were strong. And part of the appeal of the stories was the diversity of the casting. And so... When I was invited to um, read for Lady Danbury, I sort of had all that expectation of what she would make of this fairly traditional, historical, romantic, best-selling series of novels. What would she? What would Shonda do with it? What would be the the Shonda swing to it? So I've been thrilled. And my mother's a history teacher, and I've grown up with, you know, Jean Plady and Georgette Hare and all those historical novels. So to be involved in a version of that was really exciting for me. There was some criticism that Bridgerton wasn't historically accurate. 
well, even though David Olasoga, a great historian, yes, was a consultant, yes, and it never claimed to be a documentary, yes. Did this upset or annoy you, or was the validation well, of reaching I, eighty million viewers enough? Well. I asked David to come on board. Yeah. Yeah, as you say, he's a great historian. And David's thing, sort of my thing from a, a different, more learned angle, is just to put the history back into history. Mm. So we do know that Queen Charlotte was descended from Alfonso III of Portugal and a woman of African heritage. When she came to this country, there were complaints uh, about her ugly, thick lips and her wide nose and her mulatto skin. You know, that's documented history. Of course, there were people of colour in this country. There were 20,000 black people around St. Giles. They were called the Blackbirds of St. Giles. There was a, a black tailor who people think may have been the basis for Shakespeare's Othello because he used this tailor. Do any of these appear on any textbook? I don't know that, that any they child do, John. Ever but reads. My, my kids, I think they learnt the Nazis and the Tudors. But, you know, <laughs> even there, they didn't learn about the people of colour who were in Tudor England. Of course they were. We're a trading nation. We went there, people came here. It's not rocket science. And they didn't learn. Think, you know, even that recent film, Dunkirk, I mean, the first people onto the beaches at Dunkirk were the British Indian Army. The last people off the beaches were the British Indian Army. Did we see we're that? We never told we that. Ne we never get... We, the f I had no idea of no. that. Well, the, the first people that were road tested for mustard gas survival rates... Again, 1916, the British Indian Army. You know, we never learn about the troops that were taken from the colonies across Africa and Asia and fought in the First World War, never mind the Second World War. We don't know about Arthur Wharton, the first black British army officer who was also a professional footballer, you know, who led his men and should have been commended during the First World War and wasn't until posthumous because of his race. We don't learn about these people. If we understood all of our history... Oh, God, look at me. I'm banging on. But if we understood all of our you're history... You're not banging on. You're educating. If we understand everything, there's less conversations about, you know, go back where you came from. It's like we've always been here in various iterations. We've contributed the science in this country, the literature, the music, the, all these great discoveries for which Britain is rightly commended. Much of it came from our trade. It was funded by trade. Mm, Whether mm. that was indentured or enslaved, uh, overseas adventurism, that's what funded the flourishing of this nation. So we have to fold all that history but in. The more we speak, the more I realise that the balance in the reporting of history really has got to be rectified. And, and that is despite David Olasoga and a few others. It needs to be across the piece. And I think we need to have people in positions of ministerial educational power that don't want to take us back to a, some halcyon period of education in the late 1950s, but want to take us into a world where we know all the stuff all the time. It will help us to flourish. It will help people to feel like they can engage in the nation's progress in a way that allows them to use all their talents. You know, I want girls to know about women scientists. I want them to know about DNA and the women that were involved in that because there is still this thing, oh, girls don't do science. Well, but that's ridiculous. We may have some brilliant scientists who are just not coming through because it's never been on the radar that it's a possibility for them. Bridgerton. Such a high-profile TV show. Have we arrived? Um, no. No, John, we haven't. 
But I mean, you have. Uh, well, so so it it depends how you you know. If we want to talk about the outcomes of black women experience maternal care in this country, when we are four times more likely to die or have um, life changing things happen during labour or anti and postnatal care, you know those things are still real. Deaths in custody of people of colour, you know the real lived experience out in the world, we haven't arrived. But I think storytelling is a powerful tool. And I think that we have to have the conversations that do what you just said. You know, the king is on the stage, but then it just becomes a normal thing. Melanin is not the whole story. And we all have to be able to engage with each other as one human being to another. Because all those preconceptions are the things that make people assume that black women have a higher pain threshold or that we're too aggressive or that we complain too much. You know, when actually a woman is in distress while trying to deliver her baby. We need to lose those lenses that make us not see the person. And that's really what I'm interested in with all the work that I do. And so I come at it through a corset and a stately pile. Somebody else will come at it through legislation. But that's, that's the work to be done. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow. And we'll be right back after this. 
the variety of stories. You know, there are always tropes that happen. So when they would want to get people of colour in two stories, for a while you'd see it in American dramas, you'd always see the judge would always be black, that sort of thing, or the uh, tough boss at the police station would always be black. Now we've started having a thing where you have lots of off-colour psychotherapists or therapists in dramas. Um, you're having those sort of tropes. And what you want is you don't just want the person who seems to have representative power. You want the person who has the narrative power throughout the story. Yeah, and- but the problem, therefore, is that the commissioning editors themselves need... To understand to- that. Indeed. Yeah. And, that's, and they should, in part, be drawn from... There should be a, a, a wider variety of, of women, people of colour, um, different abled people, different sexualities, the whole... I mean, we have to have everything, because then we'll get all the stories in. Well, you actually delivered a lecture very recently in which you called for a wider story embrace across the board. I did, yes. I'm the um, Cameron Mackintosh... What's the official title? The Cameron Mackintosh visiting... Professor of Contemporary Drama at Oxford University. Goodness me, uh, that's a long title. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Yes, that was my inaugural lecture at Oxford. I was just talking about storytelling and swinging the lens on that. I have a production company called Swinging the Lens, and it's about, you know, who is that person that just put the food in on the tray? Never mind you lot. Who's she? How did she get to work today? What's she interested in? Do her feet hurt? Does she like these people? What, What would she have liked to have done with her life? You know, I'm interested in those people. Yeah. Mm. Now, we can trace your storytelling ambitions to Richard III, which Mm. you both direct and star in. Firstly, for those not familiar with the play, can you explain what that amounts to? Yes. So, in this country, there were two opposing houses, factions, you would call them. There were the Lancastrians and the Yorkists. And there was a king, Henry VI. Henry VI was a bit of a dreamer, um, a philosopher, a spiritual person, not necessarily the biffy king who was going to hold the nation together. He was married to a woman called Margaret of Anjou, who'd come over from France. She probably would have been a better king. In opposition to them were the House of York. There was Richard of York and his four boys. Edward, there was Richard, there was Clarence, and then there was Rutland. There was warring backwards and forwards. Eventually, Henry VI is defeated by Edward. Edward becomes Edward IV. Richard is his younger brother. He fought alongside his brother. Uh, Now his brother has married this woman, Elizabeth Woodville, whose family had actually fought for Henry VI. And Richard is fed up. And he has lost his right-hand side place with his brother to this woman and her family. So when the play starts, he is a soldier who has been great at soldiering and now it's a time of peace. He doesn't know what to do with that peace because in the peacetime, he's no longer valued for who he was in the wartime. He's just the younger brother who looks weird and nobody really likes him or gets on with him or wants him around. And he's raging about Elizabeth and her family, these nouveau riche people that have come in. He's raging that his brother has dumped him. He's raging about his younger brother who has sided with his older brother in excluding him. He's raging about the death of his youngest brother and of his father at the hands of Margaret of Anjou, who is still around. So that's the Richard we meet. And we meet someone who doesn't know what to do with himself and doesn't know how to be loved and so determines that he will find a way to get rid of his older brother, who he feels has abandoned him, get rid of his younger brother who has mocked him and take power for himself. Because if he has power, then he has the power to be safe, 
to be beloved or feared, if not beloved, as king. And so we watch the machinations of Richard to do that. But galloping over the horizon is a man called Richmond. He's a Welshman and he has been in France biding his time and he wants to take over as king. And his base grows and grows and he becomes more beloved, more powerful. And eventually there is the deciding battle which happens at Bosworth, near the town of Leicester, where his body is eventually dug up in a car park some centuries later. And that's the play. I remember it well. Yeah. 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 Dramatic moment. Yeah. But all this is rumbling about in your head. Yes. Doesn't it drive you absolutely mad? Yes. <laughs> it does, John. But, and you know, I... Imagine bearing all this across the stage when you're piecing together who is doing what and why they resent X well, or Y and why they did. I was talking to Greg Doran about this, who has just stepped down from running the Royal Shakespeare Company. Editing a Shakespeare play is one of my favourite things. You know, you don't just direct the play. If we directed the whole of Richard III, you'd have to bring your sleeping bag and sandwiches. It's the longest play that he wrote. It's enormous. There are a cast of millions in there. Lord this and blah, 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 and you see them for half a scene and then they're gone There's another one. So I spent six months editing the text. How while do you I was, strip that out? I had charts and diagrams and arrows. And, and then what do you scene. do about the people who say, who are you to take that out? Well, it's critical. You say, I'm the director of this particular production. So, <laughs> you know, that's what's going to happen. Nobody puts on a full text of a Shakespeare play. and No director does that. Everybody edits the text. It's the conversation we all have. Oh, what was your edit like? Oh, you get that? Oh, right, really? So those are the conversations So I'm looking at a woman who's perfected Shakespeare. N um, no, I haven't <laughs> perfected. I've just... He would have done the same. He would have gone, that last train is leaving the station <laughs> at half past ten. We've got to get him out. Actually, that's something I learned from David Hare when we were doing Stuff Happens at the National. There was a train that left at 10.37 from Waterloo and the play had to be comfortable for those people so you wouldn't hear the chairs flicking up <laughs> as people left to run for their train. I think Shakespeare would have completely uh, got it because he would have understood the showman that wants to get the bums on seats. They know they can catch their last train so they'll come and see your play. So is the key in the end to try and persuade the audience to be empathetic towards Richard? I want them to have, you know, the death toll is high, as it we know. It sure is. There is chippy-choppying, hanging, whatever, left, right and centre going on. But what I want people to understand is, I want them to just pause for a moment and go, oh, right, so yeah, people aren't born evil. Stuff happens to them. Stuff happens. How do we stop the stuff happening? How do we see that marginalised person and fold them back in? How have I felt when it's been me that's been that marginalised person? How have I managed to cope with my life? What have I had to do? You know, Shakespeare writes on a heartbeat because he's interested in human beings. And I want us to not dismiss human beings. There's an awful lot of that going on at the moment. You know, this whole thing about people coming across on boats, not uh, not fitting in with our way of life. What on earth does that even mean? What are people talking about when they say that? I want us to just pause and reflect on the humanity of each other. I think what I wanted to sell was the idea of the person who is judged for their appearance. You know, in Shakespeare's original he's a differently abled king. In our production, he's of colour. But the behaviour remains the same. You ostracise somebody, you malign them, you fear them, you um, don't love them because of what they look like. 
you know, Richard says in that opening speech, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these farewell spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. His first instinct is for love, you know, and I, that's not me putting a spin on it. That's what Shakespeare wrote. He talks about saying, you know, I shall despair. There's no creature loves me. And if I die, no soul shall pity me. Shakespeare gives him these words. He craves his mother's blessing. The yearning to be loved is the first instinct. The not getting that is the thing that switches him up. And, you know, lots of people, we all yearn to be loved. So I think what I want to do with the show is, is to have a wave to all the little Richards out there who, for whatever reason, are um, not allowed to be loved and in because of what they look like. But aren't you crediting... Shakespeare with an even greater capacity than even even he had. I think it, the words are on the page. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm but not. Do you think he understood? I absolutely do, and I also, you know, I think he a he's a showman. <laughs> he's a self-employed man. You know, he needs bums on seats. He needs to get the royal patronage that will allow him to keep writing the plays. He's writing for Elizabeth I, the granddaughter of Richmond who defeats Richard III and becomes Henry VII, there was a whole Tudor PR machine going on. Richmond arrived and now the red rose and the white rose come together and England can heal its wounds. So he had to write within that frame. But even within that frame, so Richard has to be the baddie, but even within that frame, he humanises this character. He lets us in a little bit to see what's going on underneath. And he's not evil. I mean, that's just not dramatically interesting. Nobody's evil. What are the nuts and bolts that take someone into that place? And that's what I, I was interested in. And I, I do think Shakespeare has that brilliance. But well, it's so fascinating to hear you because given your very busy career, I just wonder, is there a chance for kids to hear you say things about Shakespeare that we're never told at school. I always want to work with kids. I continue to direct at Rose Bruford Drama School. I direct at RADA. I would be really happy to go into schools and community colleges. I, I like young people and I don't you want You haven't got to... time. Well, I know it's tricky. I do try and make time when I can. Hopefully we're going to film Richard III, film this production. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so there'll be an access point through that. My The Richard II we did is on YouTube. People can watch that for free. Because I do think kids should see Shakespeare before they read Shakespeare, because he didn't write plays to be read. He wrote parts for actors to learn at a phenomenal rate so they could get on stage and do them. So I, I think they should... They should see the play first. Are you excited that younger people might discover this play because of Bridgerton? Is it important to you that his work reaches younger audiences yeah. to sustain the whole yeah. fascination in Shakespeare? It's not even to sustain the whole fascination. I just think if you live in this nation, he is our nation's writer. He is our top of the tree export on a literary front. And we all have ownership of that. Yeah. It should be available to all of us. And so we have to find a way to make it available to people because he has great insights on everything all the time. You know, love, romance, death, despair, war, peace, plague, famine, you name it, Shakespeare's got something to say about it. You gave a very powerful TED talk mm. on transgenderism in 2014, speaking about your hope that we learn to let go of difference, that differences that divide us. Mm. Nearly a decade later, do you find the toxic debate about trans issues I find it so alarming? distressing, John. And in which case, 
is Richard III about addressing that to some absolutely, extent? Absolutely, absolutely. It's all those differences. Pick your poison. It might be transgender somebody. It might be a differently abled somebody. It might be a masculine presenting woman or a feminine presenting man. It may be caste or class or race. You know, it can be that kid that doesn't have the money for the fancy trainers at school. You name it, it could be anything. It's it, Those things that exclude us, the bars that are put against are flourishing and... I, you know, are very I, destructive. They grieve me because yeah. it's a miracle that we're alive. <laughs> it, life is a miracle. It's miraculous and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And, you know, anything that detracts from that, you know, I would like to tell stories that help us to push those bars aside. When I did the TED Talk, I really wanted people to... Think about the little human soul that is still inside everybody mm. with hopes and dreams and desires and all the range of emotions that one could possibly have. And just because I called it a fleshy overcoat, just because we all inhabit these different fleshy overcoats doesn't mean that we are, aren't all precious and that we aren't all valuable and that we aren't all to be cherished. And so for me, the debate that characterises trans people in this awful, threatening way, particularly a trans person who's transitioning from male to female. If you are a parent or somebody who loves somebody who is transitioning and you see what that person has to go through, the courage to walk out in the gender that you feel is your true gender, to be in public when you're having such a hostile conversation happening around you. you. Transgender young people, the suicide rate is enormous. The courage to go out and just say, I just want to be a human being in this way and flourish in this way. The hostility, it distresses me enormously. And I know that I come from it from a heart place because as a kid you go, why are people mean to me? They don't know me. But if you don't know me, why am I not allowed in your house? You know, all that sorts of stuff. Um, so I know that it comes from a very personal, childish place for me. But I think, what's that phrase? Our cracks are where the light gets in. And I think those things that may be wounding for us can be the place where we find empathy for other people. And I think that empathy, to notice other people, see people, is really important to me. Yeah. It took us a while to sit down together because you're incredibly busy. What's coming up that's exciting you? What are you looking to sink your teeth into next? Well, of course, there'll be more Bridgerton. There's a, <laughs> there's a prequel called Queen Charlotte that's going to deep dive into the whole notion of this Queen of Colour coming and what it, impact it would have on the society around in, in a really interesting way. Mm. And the backstory for Lady Danbury, I had conversations with Shonda about that. So I'm really excited about that. So that will be good. Um, for me personally... There's a number of projects that are happening that I'm trying to get off the ground in terms of storytelling. There's one about a woman called Dorothy Cohen Thomas. She was an extraordinary woman who bought herself out of slavery and bought 20 members of her family out of slavery right. by her own business acumen. She had an affair with William IV. You can see little monograms uh, from the period when he was still Prince William. She set up schools. She set up businesses across the Caribbean. She petitioned Parliament because Parliament at that time was taxing black women in the Caribbean who were businesswomen at a higher rate than anybody else. Is that being across... taught in school today? Um, hmm, I think not, John. Um, how but, very um, strange. How very strange. Do you think culture can perhaps override 
history and uh, indeed introduce history into I, people's lives and I an understanding. Storytelling takes us back into history. It can do. I have had so many conversations with a variety of people who've loved Bridgerton who've gone, but is that true? And then have started to delve into it. And then once you do, it's extraordinary. You know, we're a really interesting bunch of people. And this country's history is so interesting because it has been this fulcrum of comings and goings and shifts and changes. And um, to, to see all of that, history is only a bunch of people's lives from way back when. We sort of think of it as this thing in aspic. It's not. It's your granddad or your great grandma and their stories and how they got to be who they were. That's all it is. So it's just us looking at stories about ourselves. Well, what an incredible experience you've taken us on. I'm just so grateful to you, Adya and uh, for talking with me and at such depth. It's been a real pleasure, John. Thank you. That was Adjua Ando, whose production of Richard III concludes on the 13th of May. If you can't make it along to the Rose Theatre, there are links to her 2019 performance of Richard II in the episode description. And just follow Swinging the Lens on YouTube for future filmed performances. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice, and I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.